welcome to episode two of Sound Learnings, a podcast about education in audio, music technology and music production, sponsored by Routledge. My name is Tim Canfer, and I'm joined by your other hosts, Russ Hepworth-Sawyer and Carola Boehm. I'm working on the pronunciation. Bear with me, Carola. I'm recording this intro in late September 2020. This episode is a chat with my friend and colleague, Tim Spag-Spate, a recording and mix engineer and an FE course leader at Barnsley College. He has recorded a vast amount of musicians, from Donna Summer, McFly, Steps and Westlife, plus a whole bunch of dance music, working a lot for Ministry of Sound, for example. The chat was recorded in June 2020, and you may notice that we had some sound issues. Both of my interfaces melted down, unfortunately, and Spag's XLRs were hidden in the garage, leaving us both to rely on our internal microphones. So it goes in the quick-fire world of podcasting. We start by discussing the economic fallout of the COVID-19 situation and move on to his history in engineering and how that developed into teaching at the same time, how he managed to maintain his spark. We finish off with some studio revelations, which were so dramatic that I decided to beep out the name. You'll see why when we get there. But for now, please enjoy Sound Learnings, Season 1, Episode 2, a chat with Tim Spagspate. So, Spag, welcome. Thank you for coming and having a chat with us. My pleasure. We tend to kick off with what's going on more or less at the moment in the news, which no doubt will be completely out of date in about 30 seconds' time. However, <laughs> I know that, Carol, you had a really interesting one to bring to us because it's, it's the big issue, particularly for creative industries. Carol? Well, yes, just three days ago, the Oxford Economics, which is a sort of economic forecasting service company, published its projected economic impact on the UK creative industries. And of course, we knew it was going to look dire, but the figures are just absolutely horrifying. Mm. So we will see 30% turnover loss compared to last year, 119,000 drop in employment in the creative industries. In addition to that, 287,000 job losses among self-employed. And of course, it's not evenly distributed. Most of it will be in London and the Southeast. So it's quite a shocking report. I yeah. have to admit, I think the creative industries have always been amazingly resilient. So we always mm. talk about the fragmentation of the creative industries. And of course, the banking crisis has also shown that the sector which almost held up the most were the creative industries, probably because the vulnerability is at the lowest element. So of course, individuals are immensely vulnerable. Um, their self-employment is, is immensely vulnerable. But at the same time, because it's so fragmented as a whole, the creative industries tend to stand up quite well. Mm. kind of wanted to pick up on that, Carol. I wonder how they can actually say with their hands and hearts they know what the self-employed are doing because, you know, for the self-employed, it's maybe one day a week in doing something, one day a week in doing something else. In fact, I wonder whether that figure, certainly if we think through the prism of music production that we all know about, you know, whether that's actually accurate because where... You might be working in theatre, let's say, you know that you're not having audiences in. So the guys you've got freelance doing sound or whatever, they're yeah. not getting any work. You can be accurate mm -hmm. to that. But in music production, my little world of mastering, you know, no labels that I work for are doing any work at the moment. All the work I'm doing is all through artists at the moment because they're at home and they've got time and they really want help. But so it's been a real complete shift. So 
how that figure's being arrived at, I'm really fascinated and interested by because it might actually be a lot worse than that. Yeah, and I think they're relying, of course, on sector bodies like UK Music, Audio UK, and they will have their own survey. Sometimes the figure go actually back to 2018 since they did a, a major survey. So I think, yes, you have to probably take it with a pinch of salt. As I mentioned, I'm just wondering, especially in the self-employment market, yes, we do think that the gig economy in general is always perceived as a bad thing because it, it, it makes the individual so vulnerable. But I think overall in the sector, the gig economy also creates a resilience of the sector as a whole because there will always be arts and creative activities and engagement and there will always be people who want to sustain themselves in relation to that. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, you know, IBM closing down. It is 67,000 one-man, two-person companies trying to survive and some of them will survive and some of them will not. But as a whole, I think that activity will continue. But, you know, of course, this is not minimizing the risk to the individuals and that is a real risk and because they're much more vulnerable. What do you reckon, Spike? Well, I've been very concerned just generally of the economy full stop and I've not actually really zoomed in on the creative arts because I've just seen it's going to be hard times across the board, no matter what area you're in. Mm. And I've got personal links to this, actually. The announcement from Cameron McIntosh yesterday about the theatre situation as well. Mm. I've got a lot of actor friends. I've got people who who work directly for Cameron McIntosh, actually. And that brought it home a little bit more that the impact from such a a big and and strong industry, really, where you look at the theatre. But I see it mirrored, unfortunately, in a lot of the other creative sides of it within the audio production, recording and mixing. So I'm worried long-term for everybody. Mm. Yeah. But I think, Matt, you kind of mentioned it about being resilient. I think, you know, the creative people are resilient. And what I have seen is the amazing use of new technologies, really, that mm. where people have been able to express themselves and music's gone, you know, where collaborations have become more apparent. And I think what we'll drag, talk about the quality of the record is the quality of audio on streaming. <laughs> this could be another, you know, it's probably been highlighted more now than ever. And this could yeah. be another area that where the pro side of it might take off because people said, actually, there's a flaw in this. We could do more audio collaborations, but the technology is letting us down a little. So this might push that forward a little bit more. So we might just get a whole new way of working to a really high standard. Yeah. And I think, as you said, theatre, live music is immensely affected by it. Yeah. And probably a large portion of the numbers of the losses are all in the live sector, whether that's theatres. And I see here, again, the statistics of the report, they expect a turnover loss in the theatre sector of 61% and the music sector of 50%. And of course, music is how we counted or how UK music counts it quite predominantly also the live sector and the people who are recording the live sector and the people who are Mm. filming the live sector. So that's a big hit. We have seen a really interesting flip historically because it used to be that the live performances would promote the recordings but now post piracy it's totally opposite it's the recordings that have to promote (laughs) the live which you hopefully get some revenue from and now the lives out the question so as you say we're having to completely reimagine what kind of collaboration and creative work might look like online and i don't want to do a doomsday kind of scenario but the second wave is brexit So if we think now it's bad for the UK music industry, when Brexit, when no deal Brexit hits. Yeah. And of course, even worse, the third wave is then when the environment goes up. (laughs) (laughs) 
So we're back online. Many technical issues today, but welcome back, Spag. Yes, thank you. As you've been so heavily involved in the pro industry, could you give us a brief highlight of your career? So I was fortunate in, in the early 90s after leaving Gateway School of Sound Recording to work for Peter Well, which was obviously Pete Waterman's production company, which followed on from Stock Aiken and Waterman, which I think still today are one of the most successful production trios mm-hmm. uh, in I would say almost in world music, but definitely in British music. And basically, for working for Pete for a number of years, I've been in-house engineer for recording and mixing and then being self-employed. And the nice thing about working for Peter Well is that because I was the in-house engineer, it was accepted that Peter Well should become... It was very insular to start with. Nobody got to walk in that building unless they were invited into that building. It was so strict because of the whole conveyor belt of the pop music industry at that time. But it was decided that the doors should be open, which which was good for me because I got to work with so many producers from different labels in different genres. And before long, I was getting all these... But The Peter Wilson became a smaller part and I became like the external engineer and mixer as well to the point where... I was getting so busy that I thought I made the decision at that point just to go self-employed. I was in a nice position because Pete still wanted to pay me to be self-employed for him, but then I was doing all the freelance work for all these other companies. I've worked for all the majors and so many independents who were affiliated to the majors. And then after so long, the studios weren't always available. So I just ended up picking all the studios around London that I always wanted to work in. And it was lucky from that point of view. And then it got to the point that, I was so busy and I actually took a break away because I was working six, seven days a week and I was losing that creative spark, which is one of the reasons that got me to where I wanted to be because mm. I just had all these ideas and the way I wanted to do things. I was losing it. I took a break. It was, it was a two-week break, mid-late 90s really, where I went to have a chat with an old friend of ours, Rich T, and had a chat to him then came into college and just said, I need a break from it because it's, mm. it's making me ill. Mm. From that, the, the whole education side of it just started to happen. And it was just, it was so good because I was having to work and think in a completely different way out of a pro field. But the nice thing is, when I did go back into the industry where I was just picking, still picking up the project, the spark and the creativity started to come back. And that's been it ever since. And over a period of time, I'm definitely more education based now, but I'm in a position now where I still get sent projects that I can work mm. on remotely and I don't have to travel up and down the M1 84 times yeah I would say a week but it's not as many as that (laughs) (laughs) Spad is it an issue because I had a colleague in the live engineering sector and he basically also suggested live engineering is a sort of young man's game and the moment you start a family and you want to have that permanence and we were talking about resilience of the creative sector you know there's this precarity of the individual in the creative industry and he was saying live music being in that sector you can do that until your 30s and when you start a family you actually want that safety net does that reflect your journey then as well or it it definitely does a little bit because when i was my 20s and my 30s my life was me Mm. You know, I could do session, 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 no sleep, catch up, session, session, session. And then as I've met Ruth, who's now my wife, in the family sector starts me, you definitely reassess my life. And I thought, yeah, I would like to do additional projects, but I've moved on a little bit now. I'm not so keen, you know, I'm so pleased with the CV I've got and I'm still picking up the little projects, but it's not the be all and end all for me now. And I'm happy that being self-employed, I've I always talk about peaks and troughs, and which is very apt with the whole sound mm. analogy. I had some amazing peaks, but then every now and again, you don't get a trough, and you think, well, and I was always lucky that that trough never lasted that long, and the peaks 
covered the troughs financially. So it would definitely, I couldn't think of trying to do it now mm. with two young children and everything else. So it definitely has shaped my progression, if you like. In fact, the industry's changed, I think, don't you think, a lot way. I mean, even Peter, I don't think, has got the studios anymore and the rooms you were used to using don't really exist in quite the same way anymore. No, no. And talking about, I'm going to mention this before the, before my dropout, the biggest change, which is so good from a music and production point of view, is that years ago when I first started, I caught the back end of the analogue tape domain with big mixing desks and SSLs and, and Studio 24 tracks. I've mm. seen the change where nobody could dream of doing any kind of decent audio production at home, where everybody can do decent recording production at home now. And I think it's another way that if we didn't have this technology now, I'd be even more worried from a music point of view because I'm thinking, who on earth can work on music now other than like doing a little cheap demo at home with no equipment? But mm. and my students, some of the talking to education, some of my students now are coming with they've got the MacBook and they've got their interface, they've got a few mm. mics, they're running Logic, they're running a bit of Garage Band, and I've even got one lad who's now programming drums on his phone in Garage Band and linking it up to Logic, and just like it's amazing. And again, because the young mindset is that they just take it all on board and they're used to it. They just take it for granted. Mm. And they've not had to fork out, don't get me wrong, you can spend a lot of money still, but you've not had to fork out thousands and thousands to be able to do it. I think it's just staggering how they're just, they're embracing the technology and moving yeah. it on. Even if you did have access to the tape machines and the mixing desks, the amount of money it costs to have a 15 minutes on a Two-inch multi-track is a lot of money. Oh, it's ridiculous. Ridiculous. <laughs> and of course, on the positive side, you could call it the sort of democratization of the production process. And of course, we all know on the negative side, there was a book published called The Age of the Amateur. So there are two sides to that. Personally, I welcome it. Yeah, yeah. That's one thing I take from education. I've been asked to do a few, do a bit of writing for prospectuses and things like that and talk about education. And I've said personally what I do like to see, and it's one of the biggest buzzers I get from education is, yeah, a lot of what I do is anecdotal. I talk about, I try not to say right and wrong ways because I always think, I don't like to say right and wrong within creative industries, but I always try and give guidance. But what I love to see in education is where the students take what I've said, they do their own interpretation, they come up with something new, and again, they just push them out. And I, when I see an end product from what they've done using Old school techniques. I'm very structured when it comes to production and recording. I like everything done in a very organised way. And if they can apply that organisation to some extent, but with their creativity, you get something new. And that's what I love. Nice. That's cool. Do you think, is it similar in the interactions you've had in the pro world with musicians and artists? What's the difference, I suppose, and the parallels between the interactions you have with students? Yeah. There's an obvious difference straight away. In the pro world where you are dealing with professional musicians, producers and everything else, everybody's got, what's the word, structure. Mm. And there's a focus. Even though it can be quiet, like, you know, you might still start off with a blank canvas. A lot of time in the pro world, I found, especially with pop music, it became very formulaic, where we'd be working to a set structure, even to the point where we'd get an email saying, right, we want the drums like that track, but we want the bass line from that track. It became like production by numbers in a way. And it was accepted. And by the end of it, we'd still do our own interpretation, but there was structure mm. and it worked. What I find with students, and especially at that young age, it's chaotic. <laughs> they start working on that, but they forget about that, and then they do that, but that's the detriment to that. And it's trying to like give them some structure and organisation to get to the product. They do get product, 
Mm. But it's not always in like, I, I try and stress that you can still be creative. You can still have that blank canvas. If you give yourself a structure, it can be beneficial in the long run. And I'm just got a quick story about this. I work in freelance on some productions with a freelance producer who'd he got the education. He'd gone through education system and he's very knowledgeable on production. He was great on logic. We tried to do collaborations. It's the hardest work I've ever had to do <laughs> because he had no set way of working. Whereas in the pro world, everybody's got the drums are here, the bass is here, the fundamentals are there. Da, da, da. He said to this session, I couldn't unpick it because he, oh, I've done that to do that, but then, oh, but I needed that to do that. I just thought, oh, it was, oh. <laughs> and in the end, I said, look, I said, forget it. What, you, what are you going to have to do? I don't want the session off you anymore. I want all your stems. Just so, give me all solid stems, give me the session, and I'll organize it and mix it. And that's what we had to do because I couldn't work. It was just so messy. What he done, by the way, hmm. sonically, it worked. <laughs> but from like from a collaboration point of view, nightmare. But that's what universities are so good for, isn't it? You know, they experiment. There's young talent with new ideas, which is mixing with yeah. experience and scholarship. And it's a safe space where you can experiment and stretch yourself and really try yeah. things that also in the industry might be too risky to try. Mm. Mm. It's also worth mentioning something you said, Carola. It's very much a, a young man's game. I wanted to, obviously, it's very topical at the moment with everyone talking about inclusion and equality. But what have you found, Spag? Have you found that it is purely a white bloke environment? Has that changed much? And is it because it's just so difficult and there's no room for any consideration of families? Or is it simply locked into that, you know, those are the people and you, you have a network, so those are the people that perpetuate? Yeah, I mean, obviously the network thing is a big thing and it becomes, it's all about sometimes who you know exactly, yeah. scenario. But what I, I mean, I was lucky as well to work in so many genres and especially in house and garage and when all, all the trendy side of music, you know, talking about the people that I'm working with. I work with so many different people Mm. from different backgrounds and different races. And out of anything, if anything, the music industry, I think, is more open than any. I mean, I'm a big football fan as well. Just talking about football quickly, where obviously there's a, yeah, yeah. a football start again last night. And I think football and sport is another one where background and race as a, as a professional mm. is, is quite open. I've just watched the Michael Jordan documentary on, on Netflix as well. And again, the race and background, it's so open professionally, but it just seems to be mm. outside of people looking in where... You know, there's obviously issues still with race and background, which is which is such a shame. I suppose there's the managers, isn't there? There's only like one or two managers. I suppose the question is, what are the places of power looking like? Yeah, yeah. It's hard not to say it. When you hire up the tree. Exactly. When you're making those decisions. Just quick about the, the management as well. Again, not talk about football all the time, but That's cool. uh, Scotland's had its first black manager in, in over 20 years in, in the last two days. Oh, cool. And it's a shame, really, that, you know, it's mm. been a big news story, and it's a shame that it is a news story. It shouldn't be a news story. No. But it is. I think we need to realise that there is an issue. You know, I think we're kind of beyond the ability to be colourblind now, mm. which is maybe a good thing. But anyway, four white people talking about race. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it's a topic that's going to come back. There's current reclassifications with the term urban music and so on and so yeah. forth going mm -hmm. on at the moment, which I think we should pick up on at another mm -hmm. time. Spag, you talk about what Phil Harding refers to in his time working Stock Egg and Waterman as watermarking. That will take the bass line from this track, take the drums from this track. And obviously in Phil's book, he's spoke very fluidly about that. 
that structure, Carol has hinted at, is something that in education we tend to stick to those structures. Mm. There are those, of course, within education philosophy and stuff that say structures are stifling of creativity. But how do you view it? Because for me, music production is a product, it is commercial, it is getting a product out. Whereas you could be ignorant, I suppose, and suggest that those are totally creative would yeah. never get a product out because they're too busy fiddling. Yeah. How do you sit with this? And certainly when you're teaching your students, how do you put this across? One of the key things I always say to students is, and I've mentioned it already about being right and wrong. And I always say to the students, if you ever meet me, this is the right way to do something, you can pull me up on it. <laughs> and it's always from guidance because there's so many tracks out there that if I listen, I mean, we could probably all do this, we analyse music. <laughs> rather than listening to it sometimes. But at times when I sometimes start to analyse, I think, God, this is wrong. It's just wrong on quite a few levels, but the product still works. So I tend not to get mm. I tend not to get too over-worried about or stressed about, like, the lack of a structure, because I do agree that a bit of fluidity and, and, and like I've mentioned before, about a little bit of chaos in there mm. is not a bad thing. But it's about controlling that chaos to make sure that you get from point A to point B. And I think that's where some people, I've got a few students where they start off with this idea and it all gets messy and they lose interest in it because they can't see the end goal. And I think that's that's the professional mindset where, you know, I can start work on a project and I know where we are and I know exactly what I've got to do to get to point B. And that takes time, that's experience. And that's what I try and give them is working through that point. I've worked with people, by the way, this went back to me uh, Ministry of Sound, I used to do work for Ministry of Sound and I got, I used to work with some of their producers who, sadly, make myself really old now, back, back in the day when I was just, you know, sat in the studio six, seven days a week, they were a big, you know, anybody, if you put together a product and if you went down the white label route and you put out a white label and it started to kick off, you could be signed instantly. And I was fortunate to work with some of these producers that literally at one hit, they've just stumbled on a gem of production. You know, they've captured something and it blows up. And I'm lucky that I did that myself for one of my own tracks. But I worked with some producer who came to a studio who'd done some work and the track were amazing, absolutely amazing. The a uh, girl from Ministry came in and she loved it. She was jumping up and down in the studio with the track. Well, we're just reworking the white label, basically. And she she said, like, you know, but can we have another eight bars of intro before we get to the main hook? And no one ever lied. They turned around and said, what's a bar? <laughs> they had no idea. <laughs> they had no idea what a bar in music. And I'm not a musician. I mean, I've, I've got the history of music. I've played keyboards. I never even thought about it. But they were purely from vibe and structure and what happened. Hmm. They didn't... They know they get the feel of it. They know that every eight or sixteen bars a change happens, but they've never consciously gone out and counted it. They just know that it feels to change at that point. And it struck me that a perfect example where they've got no idea. They've got no idea of structure and anything like that, or counting it, if you like. And but they know to get from A to B, but they just didn't know all the the bits that went in it. I take it they didn't do any more work after that spag. <laughs> not that not that particular group, no. no. <laughs> But I do wonder, has that changed in the industry or is that still the case? I think that's still the case. Mm. Yeah. I think there's more and more people now. If I were to make a guess, Carol, I'd probably say it's probably worse because we've mm. got a lot of people now who watch a couple of YouTube videos mm. or they start messing around at home because they can do and they're getting to, a, and yeah, I'm not saying the wrong way, just a bad way of working. And I'm yeah. finding myself that in education now that I'm, mm. I'm starting to have to do more unpicking 
to try and lay down a nice foundation because I'm still going to get to there, but the working with structure and controlling the creativity without it getting mm. out of control. If you can't get to point B, if you can't finish a product because it's chaos, what's the point? Absolutely. Yeah, it is an interesting one because it's probably reflected in our entry requirements. I don't know how your entry requirements are. You know, we had in another university where I worked at, we had a music degree, a music production degree, and uh, I think a popular music degree. And it was actually a music production degree that didn't need uh, applicants to be able to read music. Now, I always thought that reading common Western notation is not necessary, but the structure, as you say, is important. It's being able to have some form of ability to work with structure in order to, to, to communicate that structure in the production process. But I don't know if that's reflected in your institutions in terms of entry requirements. I mean, if I just mentioned that, then, regarding our entry, our biggest requisite is being able to play. And whether you play from memory or you've learned from a YouTube clip or however you've learned it, being a good player is key. In fact, we don't actually... While we do take on board, people might have a qualification in music, the qualification from school, especially from music production, it doesn't really mean very much to mm. us as an entry requirement, really. Obviously, English and maths is important, mm. and that's been forced upon us now, which is a, that's a, probably another argument for another time. Mm. To see somebody with a spark who's got a passion for playing and a passion for recording, that's much more important. But I'll just quickly about scores, because this is always another thing about pro industry and scores. In over 20 years of been involved in projects, I saw a score once because we needed live strings. <laughs> the boy band Blue, which they're still going to some extent, but we did a few sessions with Blue and the producer had programmed all strings, but he wanted it done as a live recording. The record company gave us five grand to go and record live strings and we did. Now I went along with the backing track. The engineer at this studio, he recorded all the strings for me and laid it out exactly how I wanted it. The MD came in with the score for Craig to check with the producer. Fortunately, he could read the score because there were a lot of producers who can't read scores either. But he checked the score and said, well, yeah, I think that's great, that. And they went in and they played it and it just sounded like what had been programmed on strings. And no word of a lie, that's the only time. Oh, I tell a lie. I've got one more story and it's to do with a, a drummer, Ian Thomas. <laughs> where, again, this was for McFly, actually, in the early stages of McFly, where all the drums for the tracks were programmed to get the ball rolling. We got Ian Thomas in to do some session drumming on the sessions, and he sat down and spent 10 minutes scoring the drums. So he re-scored the drums in drum notation, which I thought were amazing, and did the drums in three takes perfectly. <laughs> Superb. I was blown away. I pressed play and record because I saw him at the back of the room. I just played it for a few times. He scored it all that. And I could see what he'd done. I thought, cracker, this is a new one. <laughs> I pressed play and record. I said, Chris, this will be interesting. <laughs> and honestly, I can remember my jaw just going, how good is this guy? Nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. And to be honest, in two takes, he'd done it. And we said, shall we do a third for safety? It was so good. You've said this before, Spag, you know, about certain vocal sessions and layering up and how you've had session musicians just come in and literally while the artist has gone, they've almost not necessarily resung their parts, but they could have easily resung and voiced their parts in exactly the same way. In some cases, it has been completely resung without the artist's knowledge. <laughs> We've had so many jokes in the studio, and obviously I'm not going to mention their names now. We moved from Radar to Pro Tools as Pro Tools came out. So I saw Radar and then we went to Pro Tools. We've had so many laughs where the artist's gone and the producers just dragged the Pro Tools session and pressed delete in the wastebasket. So we can't even get it back. <laughs> to start with, he dragged it into the waste bin and we're all like rolling around laughing. But then he purposely went out of his way to, to empty the wastebasket. He said, we're not using it. It's done. And we make a phone call and within like two hours, 
session musician turns up, we redo it all, perfect. And the artist none the wiser. <laughs> That's great. You've got to love it. You've got to love it. <laughs> Carla, you're writing a lot about location at the moment. It's what we're always talking about, the London centricity of our whole economy. In the past five years, of course, there has always been a debate, is everyone else holding London back or is London holding everyone else back? Hmm. And I have to say, I'm rather in the second camp, specifically the revolution to the north. We've got some real music powerhouses in the north. If you had better infrastructure, we could increase the music industry substantially if the infrastructure would be better. Spag, is that something that you are aware of being now in the north or is it when you have commercial projects, you actually still go to London to do them? I'll be honest with you, I think there's been a massive change now. Crucial to this, I think, was when the BBC decided to move to Salford. Mm. I think that's such a massive shift, the whole Salford Keys. Mm. And I think gradually working from Manchester over to the Pennines, into Yorkshire, into Leeds and Sheffield, I think there's a definite change. And I was always aware that there were a lot of studios closed down in London when I was there. And I think it became so expensive, especially as people are doing more productions and recordings at home. You didn't need to go to a big studio in London anymore. Why pay for a big studio in London anymore? Yeah. Unless you want to do big strings or you've got a major thing. I think there's a definite shift in a positive way. And who knows what we're going through now. It's causing every element of life and of industry and of work to be reassessed. And I think if there's an opportunity to yeah. change, and just a quick example, my wife normally gets sent to London for conferences for her work twice, three times a year, and it costs thousands to send everybody to, to these conferences. And straight away, there's a shift. We don't need to go to London anymore. We can do things remotely. And mm. I can see it being mirrored, yeah. hopefully, in the music industry. Why do you need to go to London? Why do we need all the artists? Why do we need the A&R down in London? We don't need to do that anymore. I saw a shift a few years ago, yeah. and I can only see that it could be continuing. Yeah. And when they announced the HS2, I would have actually loved for them to do the HS3 before doing any HS2. So connect Sheffield with Leeds, Absolutely. connect Manchester and Leeds is already connected. But just that cross connection yeah, um, yeah. would be absolutely fabulous for something like the music industry. Geographically, it's worse than that. You've got the central spine of Nottingham, Mansfield and all of that. They can't connect with us up north. You've got Lincoln that can't connect up with us. Some of those areas, Nottingham especially, is a huge musical hub that's yeah. unable to connect as it should be able to. Yeah. So there's lots of these issues. So I think Spag's right. The democratisation of this communications network and being able to do things remotely and the acceptance, cultural acceptance that this is possible, yeah. I think will move us forward. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. We started at the very beginning with the incredibly bleak news about how everything has fallen apart and we're all doomed. However, there was a suggestion. There might be a part that education could play. What do you reckon, Spag? Good question. I wanted to think about this the other day, and this is purely by what's happening with us as a college and what we did pre-closure. We were in a position, luckily, where we had, well, 30 IMAX, we had... 30, 40 laptops, and before we closed on that last Friday, we booked out nearly all the laptops and a few iMacs as well and shipped it out with inboxes. So we had a lot of students who actually could go home and work on Pro Tools. Following on from that, and obviously these students have still got the iMacs, they've still got all this equipment, which, you know, that's, that's going to be another thing we've got to sort out. I do appreciate that not every student's going to have the resources to have their own computer or their own laptop. But I've started pricing up as part of our enrolment process for around about £50 to get a stereo USB audio interface 
with some cheap dynamic microphones. You could even get a couple of cheap condenser microphones. The process of pro recording and the techniques and the principles behind it can still be done. Mm. It's already been agreed that I'm going to have my own camera for filming at college. So I can talk about the theories of recording. I can talk about the theories of production. I like drawing pictures about recording production. I can film it all. Hopefully the students are awake at this point. (laughs) They can take on board, they can review it, but then I can have practical workshops with small numbers of students coming in and using the stuff mm-hmm. that I've talked about online. Hopefully they've had to go at home as well, but then we push it forward using the pro systems, the pro microphones. So again, I see another great opportunity that I can do things a different way, but the students, rather than like, oh, I can't do anything wrong because I've got no equipment at home, hopefully with a small bit of input mm-hmm. financially, they can be up and running and it becomes productive. Yeah, brilliant. I had one student, I think I found it for like 35 quid. I think Beringer did like a cheap version of the Scarlet 2i2. He said, my mic works because I've got Phantom Passes. Exactly. It, it was it were absolutely all over the moon. It was buzzing just from like that bit of kit. No, it's great. Tim, you need to go shopping. What's that, sorry? Both of my preamps melted down, which is why I'm on this rubbish <laughs> mic. No, uh, no, thanks again, man. That's brilliant. A pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the second episode of the Sound Learnings podcast. Sound Learnings is produced by Tim Canfer, Russ Hepworth-Sawyer and Carola Bohm. Editing, mixing and music composition by me, Tim Canfer. Mastering by Russ Hepworth-Sawyer. Show notes and social media by Carola Bohm. Our preferred platform is Twitter. The podcast is hosted by Acast. And if you have enjoyed the show, please do leave us a review if the podcast app that you use allows it. Otherwise, please give us a shout on your favourite sharing platform. It really helps for others to find out about the podcast. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at Sound Learnings. Goodbye for now. Bye. Bye.